This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannick. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to Numbers 23, Numbers 23, we'll be going through a couple of chapters today, Numbers 23 and 24, as we continue uh, in the story of Israel's journey through the wilderness, uh, from their slavery in Egypt to the conquest and freedom of the promised land in Canaan. Remember, this journey was supposed to take about 24 months, about two years but it's taken 40 years to their un- due to their unbelief and unwillingness to follow God. And most of us can look in the mirror and see the detours of our life as well, where maybe God intended us to go left and we said, no, I'm going to go right. And uh, we actually ultimately got where we were supposed to be, but uh, there were times it took a little longer than what it should have. Well, this has taken about 20 times longer than it should have. God intended them to go in about two years and they've been there about 40 So along the way, they've spent most of their time in three locations, as we talked about last week, Mount Sinai at the foot of the Sinai Peninsula, about a year and five, six days. They received the law of God, Kadesh Barnea, where they refused to go into the land, and God said, fine, you're going to wander 40 years in the wilderness. And now they're camped on the plains of Moab, we talked about last week, which is the east side of the Jordan River, and they're going to be, they're ready to move into Canaan within a matter of months. So this entire episode with Balaam that we talked about last week will continue today takes place in the 40th year. They're probably six months away from the invasion of Canaan under Joshua. Uh, Miriam and Aaron have both died and Moses will be going to the top of Mount Nebo in a matter of a few months and he will be dying as well and they will enter the land under Joshua. So they're right now camped next to the nation of Moab who is terrified of them. The king Balak of the nation of Moab is so scared that he sends about 375 miles away for a spiritual consultant, this expert consultant named Balaam. And he specializes in foretelling the future and cursing people. Yeah, I know, there's, a, there's, there's actually a market for that. Well, there was a big market because he paid him a great big fee, and last week we talked about all the gyrations of Balaam Wanting to curse Israel, God saying, no, you're not going to do it. Balaam being, having a little chat with his donkey and looking like the donkey and the donkey looking like the smarter individual here. So we, at this point in history, people believed that if you could get the right person to lay a curse on your enemy, the gods would hear them and make that curse real. So it was worth a large fee to find the right person who could intercede with the gods. And if you curse somebody, have the gods agree with that curse and make it reality. So that's why Balaam is paying or being paid the big bucks by King Balak to come down and curse Israel. So Balaam finally comes uh, to Moab and he has this entire delegation Uh, of the leaders of Moab with him. And King Balak comes to the very border of the land and meets him on the border. He's obviously pretty anxious about it. And he he really rebukes Balaam. He says, how come you didn't show up here any earlier? Don't you know that I've got a large consultant fee for you? I want you to come and curse Israel because I can't militarily uh, beat them. But if you curse them and weaken them, then we may be able to drive them off. 
So it's pretty obvious that Balak is anxious that Balaam hurry up and show up and curse Israel. And of course, Balaam says, I can only say what God gives me permission to say. I'm only going to say exactly what he says. So in that era, if you wanted to impress a god, you needed to offer rather extensive sacrifices. So Balak really, you know, he sacrifices sheep and oxen. In the first few verses here, it's pretty obvious he has a pretty big feast for Balaam and for Moab's leaders. And he probably gives Balaam some of the animal livers from this uh, feasts because at that period of time, fortune tellers would do things like they would look at animal livers and and they would find the future in those livers. Now, if you believe that, then I've got some swampland in Florida to sell you. But that was, that was in the era. That's, they were superstitious, and they believed that if you look at animal livers, you could tell the future. I figure you put little onions on them and eat them, it'd probably be better, but anyway. So Balak now, in the first few verses of chapter 23, takes Balaam to a high place in the hills where Baal worship is conducted. B-A-A-L, Baal worship. Now, the pagan god Baal is an invention of the polytheistic Phoenician culture. There are seafaring people north of Israel. And Baal was considered the god of the storm, the god of rain, the god of fertility. And Ashtaroth, or Asherah, was his female consort. Baal worship is going to be a thorn in Israel's side for the next 800 years. Followers of Baal routinely practice male and female cult prostitution, in an attempt to persuade Baal to send rain. So it was a very perverse, uh, sexually gross um, religion. And Israel finally would succumb to Baal worship, and they really battled it from today until God judged them for their inability or unwillingness to deal with it at that point. So God warned them over and over and over again. When we read the prophets of the Old Testament, a good chunk of them are saying, knock off this Baal worship and follow the Lord your God only. So after centuries of warning Israel against this idol worship, God used the Assyrians to invade Israel in 722 BC. And again, in 586, the Babylonians came in and actually took the rest of the nation to captivity for 70 years. That captivity was largely a result of their idol worship. Believe it or not, Israel never had a problem with idol worship after the 70 years of captivity. That will teach you. That's a pretty expensive lesson. Most of the lessons that we learn and actually follow usually involve a large chunk of scar tissue. 70 years is a long teaching process. So God is very patient. It's now about 1406 BC, and God tolerates this in his people for 820 years before he finally says, I'm done. Don't tolerate sin in your life. Let God deal with it because the judgment for sin is never worth the pleasure of sin. Never. So I say that because Moab is already in 1406 BC worshiping Baal. And we're going to find out next week that Israel falls headlong into this grossly perverse religion and worships Baal along with the Moabites. That's next week's lessons. So anyway, they often did these sacrifices on hilltops. They were the elevated places. So they're on a really high place and Balak has taken Balaam up there so he can see Israel. You can't curse what you can't see, so he brings them up to the top of the hill, and he says, look, they're camped out below on the plains. Curse them. Put a hex on them. So Balaam sacrifices seven bulls, seven rams on seven altars. Right? Seven was viewed as a perfect number, a complete number. 
by both Jews and Gentiles back even then, probably because based on seven days of creation and seven days of the week. So seven's been viewed as a complete perfect number for a long time. For Balak to sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams, that's pretty expensive. In that era, those animals were pretty valuable. A, a mature oxen was you know, very, very valuable for traction. They used them for plowing. So Balak is clearly very frightened of Israel, and he's going to go all out and make a very expensive sacrifice to impress this God that Balaam supposedly knows to curse Israel. So he's paying a pretty high price for this. So Balaam moves away from the altars to a bare hill where, out, where the altars aren't, and he wants to hear from God. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 23, verse 4. Now God met Balaam, and he said to him, Balaam says to God, I have set up the seven altars, and I have offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and you shall speak thus. Here's the principle. Knowing about God does not create a right relationship with God. That only comes about by faith in God through Christ Jesus. Let me repeat that. Knowing about God does not create a right relationship with God. That only comes by faith in God through Jesus Christ. Now, it's remarkable beyond our understanding that God would actually meet with and speak eternal prophetic truth through this deceitful, rebellious, greedy little human vessel called Balaam. God can use, by the way, any vessel he chooses. Last week we saw that he used a donkey to speak truth to a false prophet, which should give us hope because that means God can even use you and I, because there are times I'm not even as wise as a donkey. As we will see throughout this lesson, Balaam is going to grow in his knowledge of God. As we progress through these oracles, you're going to see Balaam learns more and more about God each time God speaks to him. So he's progressing in his knowledge of God, but he never chooses to follow God through faith and repentance. Even though he knows more and more and more and more, God speaks directly to him multiple times. He never comes to faith. He actually reminds us of Judas Iscariot. Remember, Judas is one of the 12 apostles, disciples. Judas spent virtually every day for three years with Jesus face to face. He heard almost every word that Jesus ever said. He saw almost every miracle that Jesus ever did. He heard virtually every invitation that Jesus ever gave when he preached to the crowds and says, turn from sin, turn from yourself, place your faith in me for salvation. Judas was so close and yet so far away. He was like Balaam. Balaam knew Yahweh. He heard his word. Judas knew Jesus. Balaam loved money and Judas loved silver. He was the treasurer and he stole from the disciples routinely. Balaam betrayed God's nation, Israel, and Judas betrayed God's person, Jesus. See, here's the point. <clears throat> Knowing about God Hearing God speak, spending time with God, hanging out with God's people will not save your soul. Only by choosing to place your faith in Christ alone can we be saved from sin, death, and hell. And the life of Balaam has a lot to teach us. So let's pick up verse number six. 
So he, Balaam, returned to him, Balak, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, he and all the leaders of Moab. Then Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him, he's talking about Israel, from the top of the rocks, and I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Now these words came directly from God. So God met Balaam and said, you are going to say these precise words over my people. There are seven altars, seven sacrifices. Balak is standing next to the altars. All these Moabite leaders, the, you know, the who's who, the VIPs of the Moabite nation are right there. And Balak says, I'm paying you big bucks. Curse them. God comes to Balaam and says, here's exactly what you're going to say. Use these words. Balaam speaks exactly what God told him to say, and it's not a curse, it's a blessing. Here's the principle. God's people are called to be different from the world so they can accurately represent God to the world. God's people are called to be different from the world so they can accurately represent God to the world. Now, they're on a hill. The plains of Moab are laid out before them. There's two and a half million Israelites camped out below these hills of Moab. Remember that the tabernacle was always in the middle of the nation. There's 12 tribes, and God said, I want three tribes on the east, three tribes on the west, three tribes on the north, three tribes on the south. So each direction, there are three tribes camped, and the tabernacle is in the middle with the Ark of the Covenant. So from this elevated standpoint, Balaam can see three tribes. He can see about one-fourth of the nation, right? About 25%. So he says, I can't even count the quarter that I can see. I can't even number the 25% of the nation I can see, let alone the entire population. What he's saying is God has multiplied these people so they're like dust. And you say, where have I heard that before? Didn't God tell Abraham, I'm going to make your seed like the dust, like the sand of the seashore and like the stars in the heavens? And he's done it. I mean, Jacob came to Egypt with 70 people. They left with two and a half million. Right? So there's been obviously a lot of multiplication and blessing from the Lord at that point in time. So Balaam reiterates now, he says, look, it's impossible to curse Israel because God has blessed them. And when God blesses you by divine decree, that can't be changed because Israel is not just another nation. Israel has been set apart from all the other nations by God himself. See, God had a special plan for Israel. God revealed himself to Israel on the top of Mount Sinai, gave him his law. He related to them in a unique way because he's got a unique role for them to play on the world stage. Israel's not like to be the nations. They are to represent God to the nations. 
They are ambassadors for God to the world. So they're not supposed to live like the world. They belong to God, and they are called to live lives that reflect the character of God. And that way the world will see the nation of Israel as a holy set-apart people and say, you can have a relationship with Almighty God, and these people look like God. They're behaving like the God of the Bible, the God that gave them the law. And is that not sound like the same application for us as Christians? It's exactly the same application. You and I are not to live like the world. We are to live in the world, but we are not of the world. We do not share the world's DNA. We are citizens of heaven. We do not have the spirit of the world living in us. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We belong to God and we represent Him to the world. We're ambassadors, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to God for planet Earth. So when people look at your behavior, they think your God is like you. That's why we're called to behave in a godly fashion so that when people look at us, they say, wow, you behave differently than the world. Yes, because you have God living in you who gives you the power to do that. 1 Peter 2.9 says, he's talking about us as Christians. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, Jesus, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're set apart so that we can live a life that proclaims the reality of Jesus Christ into a very dark world. Now we carry the good news, right? The gospel. That God and man's broken relationship, we broke it because of sin, can be reconciled. Now our temptation is exactly like Israel's. You know what our temptation is? Imitate the world. Live like they live. Do what they do. And the truth of it is, for many Christians, if you look at their behavior, there's not a great deal of difference between how the average Christian lives and how their worldly neighbor lives. So we're going to look at Israel next week and we're going to say, how did you fall off the cliff that quickly? Well, we're culturally blind to how we're living like the world because we live in this culture. But God says you are not to be like the world. You are to live differently than the world so you can represent me to the world. G. Campbell Morgan once wrote, the church did the most for the world when the church was least like the world. You know, you don't help pigs get clean by getting into the pen with them and wallowing with them. It just doesn't work. So that doesn't mean you never have relationships with the world. How are they going to find out about Jesus if you don't have a relationship with them? But it says... If you're going to minister to someone in that category, don't go to the bar and go drinking with them thinking you're going to minister to them. They will influence you. You will not influence them. Amen? Say amen. 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 All right. So Balaam is going to end this particular oracle, and he says, I want to die the death of the upright. Matter of fact, I want to wind up like Israel. And you think to yourself, he wants to end up like Israel. Israel's righteous. He, Balaam likes the effects of righteousness. He just doesn't like the causes of righteousness. 
See, and we look at that and we kind of smile and we say, well, we like the effects of working out and going to the gym and watching our diet and all this other stuff. We just don't like to do it, right? I mean, we like the, we like the outcomes. We just don't like to pay the price of, 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 of disciplining ourselves to have that kind of life. Balaam's going to say the same thing. See, the price tag for Balaam to wind up like the righteous is to stop worshiping his wealth. And we're going to find out he doesn't do that. He says, if the price tag means giving up wealth, then the price tag of righteousness is too high. How many of you remember the parable of the rich young ruler? Rich young ruler, Jesus said, you want to follow me? You're addicted to money. Give your money away. Come follow me. Inherit eternal life. And it says, he went away sad because he had a lot of loot. He forgot that there's no U-Hauls following the hearse. You're not going to take it with you. It's going to stay here. So Balak is a pretty unhappy guy. He expects that Balaam's going to curse Israel because he thinks Balaam can control God. That's why he's paying him the bucks. And Balaam is telling him, look, God controls me. Balak has a false concept of God. Balak thinks that Israel's God is just another local God, a little local deity that you can manipulate with human effort. So he takes Balaam to another location. He says, if this location doesn't work, let's bring you to another location. I'll offer a new series of sacrifices. Maybe you'll curse them from there. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Understand that Balak is a polytheist. He believes in many gods. And for the polytheist, all gods are local. For the polytheist who believes in many gods, there's no one god. There's thousands of them. And they each have their realm of operation. There's the god of the rain and the god of the sun and the god of the you know, nature and the god of fertility. And the, so each god has its own area. And each god maybe even has its own geography. You know, there's, there's your God in your land. He's got power. But in my land, your God has no power because I've got a local God here that in my territory is stronger than your God. So the polytheist has got a lot of gods with a lot of spheres of influence and sometimes a very specific geography, geographical one. So Balak thinks if I bring him to another location, maybe that'll do the trick. Balaam can curse Moab or curse Israel for me from that location. So verse 15, they're at location number two. Balaam says to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I myself meet the Lord yonder. Verse 16, then the Lord met Balaam, second time, put a word in his mouth and said, return to Balak and thus shall you speak. Verse 18, then he took up his discourse and said, arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. What he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no omen against Israel, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey. 
and drinks the blood of the slain. Here's the principle. We should build our lives on the foundation of God's word because everything that God promises will surely come to pass. We should build our lives on the foundation of God's word because everything that God promises will surely come to pass. I want you to notice this second oracle, Balaam's getting a little more confrontational with Balak. See, Balak is a king that he's used to getting his own way. How many of you know people that are used to getting their own way? You might be married to one. But Balaam, I mean, your spouse might be married to one. That's probably more accurate, right? Balak is very used to getting his own way, but Balaam now says, hey, Balak, listen up. God's got something to say to you. So pay attention. Balak thinks that all gods can be persuaded to change their mind, right? You can persuade them to agree with human opinion if just, you know, sufficient sacrifices are made. And Balaam's telling Balak, the God of Israel is a totally different God. The, the culture at that era thought that all gods, and this is true of all polytheism today, polytheists believe that gods are like humans. They just have more powers. You remember when you read Greek mythology, all these gods, they had power, but they were just as corrupt and lustful and angry and vengeful as human beings. When you read Greek mythology, it's, it's soap opera with superpowers, right? But I mean, it's the same human sinful characteristics. They just have a little more ability to do bad things. That's how they viewed gods. And the God of Israel is not like that. Balaam says, the God of Israel is not like a human being who lies and changes their mind because they made a wrong decision or now they have new information. The God of Israel is sovereign. A sovereign is completely independent of all constraint. A sovereign does whatever they choose and that no one says you can't do it because they're sovereign. Balaam is finally figuring out that Yahweh, Jehovah in our English version, is not just the God of Israel. He is the one and only eternal Lord of all. He's starting to understand this. And he really says God is immutable, which means God never changes. God never changes because he never has to change. He never makes a mistake. He always does all things right every time. Hebrews 13.8 <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can count on him and he will never change his mind. He will never have new insight and say, you know, I never thought of that. You will never hear God say that. You will never hear God say, whoops. You will never hear God say that. Malachi 3.6. Malachi, God is speaking to the nation of Israel and he's giving them some profound truth that absolutely is terrifying. He says to Israel, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Israel, you are not consumed. Which means if I did change my mind, I'd have wiped you out. Because you deserved it. Because you were sinners. But because I don't change, you're saved. <coughs> Balaam, <coughs> on the other hand, compared to God, he's the one who's always changing. Balaam is always shifting. He's always wheeling and dealing. 
He's always working to try and accomplish his objectives. He's the example of a human changing his mind, lying, changing positions as compared to God who never changes his mind. Whatever God promises, he will surely perform. Balaam has figured this out. He says, God has chosen to bless Israel, and Israel surely will be blessed, regardless of Balak or any other power. See, <clears throat> you and I can take God's promises to the bank. Everything that's God's written in His Word is going to happen. You can take them to the bank, and God's check never bounces, because God's bank account never has insufficient funds. Right? Say yes. Some of you understand what that is. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God doesn't see Israel as sinners. They do sin. But he says, I've not seen trouble in Israel. What he's talking about is sin. He views his people through the lens of mercy and grace. It's not that Israel hasn't sinned. It's just that Israel will never sin to the extent that God's blessing will be removed from them because God made an unconditional promise to Abraham. He said, I will bless your descendants. I will multiply them. Whoever blesses them, I will bless. Whoever curses them, I will bless. And that was an unconditional promise. God's unconditional promises depend on whose performance? His performance, not your performance. If God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, you might leave God, He will never leave you because He made that promise. It's not based on human performance. Balak, the king of Moab, thinks that blessings depend on personal performance. I mean, if I offer more sacrifices, the gods will be impressed and they'll give me my way. God's relationship with Israel is based on God's grace, not Israel's righteousness. It's like our children. Have your children ever sinned? <laughs> they have and you have, because we're children as well, right? So when we sin, and when they sin, we discipline them. But they are still our children. We don't deny that they're sinners, but they will always be our children because that never changes. God does the same thing with Israel. does the same thing as Christians. We sin all the time. Does God discipline us? Yes. But he sees us through the lens of his love and grace. We're always his children in Jesus Christ. So God is the source of Israel's strength. Balaam spends some time talking in this discourse. He says, God actually lives with this nation. He is so intimate with Israel, he actually lives with them. God is not like a deadbeat dad who disappears and doesn't pay child support. God is the perfect heavenly father. He's always present. And Balaam says, this God of Israel, he actually lives with them. He's not distant, some far off planet. He's right here with them. He brought them out of Egypt. He sustained them in the wilderness. God's presence is the only thing that explains the existence of Israel. Folks, at the end of the day, we should be living lives that are absolutely non-explainable without the presence of Jesus Christ. If your life can be explained without Jesus Christ, then I would say you're missing the core issue of life, which is Jesus Christ is the power source for everything that we do and the motivation for everything that we do. 
Israel's past has been blessed by God, and Balaam says her future will be equally blessed by God. You know, God's promises always come to pass, and I think all, every one of us in the room believes that. Here's what we struggle with. The timing of when they will come to pass. Most of us say, God, could you kind of get it in overdrive, and let's see these promises come to pass now. Just for some perspective, the most profound event of the 20th century, probably the most profound event of the last 2,000 years after the cross, boy, that's a big statement, but I think I can say it, occurred on May 14, 1948. Israel became a nation in her own homeland after almost 2,000 years of being scattered around the world. That has never happened in Six and a half thousand years of recorded history. It's another example of God's fulfilled promise to bless Israel, and they waited 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years for that promise to take place. So if you think you're waiting, <laughs> be patient. God's promises always come to fruition. Just it's in His time, not in our time. Balaam's second prophecy ends with a roar. He says, Israel's like a lion. Now, by the way, lions are called the kings of beasts for a reason. The lion has no natural predators. Have you ever seen any wildlife movies? They sleep wherever they want to, and they, don't, they sleep really sound because they don't worry about being woken up. The lion goes wherever they please, and when they're hungry, they'll hunt, they'll capture, they'll kill, they'll consume their prey. God is saying through Balaam, my nation Israel is going to be strong as a lion, and they're going to have conquests like that. Oracle number three, chapter 24, verse one. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of a man whose eyes is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like the valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted." God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall devour the nations who are his adversaries and shall crush their bones to pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. Here's the principle. Since God is the only source of our security and prosperity, we should trust in Him alone. Since God is the only source of our security and prosperity, we should trust in Him alone. This is the third oracle that Balaam is going to receive from God. Balak has taken him to a third site, new set of sacrifices. So there's been three sets of mountaintops, three sets of seven altars, three sets of, of, of bulls and rams offered. Big sacrifice, third time. This time he can see the whole nation, 
all two plus million of them spread out, tribe by tribe, camped out below him. Since God has blessed Israel twice now, Balaam figures out, I'm not going to have to look at any livers to discern the will of the God. He says he sets his face toward the wilderness, which means he steps apart, and it says the Spirit of God came upon him. The Holy Spirit filled him for this particular prophecy. And Balaam says, my eye is open and I'm falling down with my eyes uncovered. The Holy Spirit is revealing truth to Balaam that he could not see without supernatural help. And he's so overcome with the Holy Spirit that he falls down. He can't even stand up, which is very consistent with biblical revelation. Whenever the Bible reports human beings coming in direct contact with God, always they fall down. Always they have no strength. Always they have an overwhelming sense of their sinfulness and God's holiness. Isaiah 6 is one example of that. The truth of it is, none of us can stand in the presence of God without His enabling us to do that through Jesus Christ. So this third revelation, God through Balaam promises perpetual prosperity for Israel. He says they're like a well-watered garden on the banks of a river. Now in the desert, which the whole southern half of Israel gets about two, three inches of rain, the northern half gets a lot more, but from Jerusalem south, the Negev, one to two inches of rain. Very, very, very dry. Water is life. God says, I'm going to plant your descendants by abundant waters. They're going to have abundant food from these gardens. They're going to have prosperity. The aloe tree, by the way, produces very valuable spices. The cedar is a very strong tree, very strong, but it usually doesn't grow by streams. So if, it, if cedar grows by streams, <coughs> it means its strength multiplied. It's a good example that's illustrated in Psalm 1.1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he, she, will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. So he's saying... If you're a tree planted by streams of waters, you can be in a desert, but if your roots go down to the water table, you will thrive and produce fruit, even in a very hostile environment. And that's us as Christians. We're in a hostile environment called the world. Where's the source of your life, your water, your roots? They should be in the Word of God, right? In the Spirit of God. So we have divine source of strength in life that we can produce fruit and multiply the gospel in a very hostile culture. Balaam basically says, God is the source of Israel's strength. All our enemies are going to be subdued. They're going to be shattered. They're going to be crushed. You're going to dominate. You're going to dominate. Verse 10, Balak is not a happy camper. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me, saying, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad of my own accord, what the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Here's the principle. Opposing God is futile. 
Doubting God is fruitless. Following God by faith is the only way that God blesses. Opposing God is futile. Doubting God is fruitless. Following God by faith is the only way that God blesses. Here's one of the most remarkable lessons of this passage. Balak has learned precisely nothing from his encounters with God. He's hired Balaam to curse Israel. Three times he's heard Balaam bless Israel, despite different locations, multiple sacrifices, ongoing threats to Balaam. Each time he learned no one can curse Israel. And yet he persists in going to another location so that Israel can be cursed. He continues to insist that Balaam is cursed. Balaam curses Israel, even though Balaam has just prophesied, anybody who curses Israel will themselves be cursed. And he continues to want him to curse Israel. Now, here's the solution for Balak. If you can't beat him, join him, right? If Balak was so scared of Israel and the damage they were going to do to him, then simply stop trying to harm them. What's the principle? Everyone who blesses Israel will themselves be blessed. Everyone who curses Israel will themselves be cursed. You want to survive? Stop cursing Israel. Start blessing Israel and you will have the blessing of God because you're allied with his people. Duh. Why wouldn't Balak just say, you know, Balaam, God has spoken to you three times. I want Moab to be blessed by God. What do I need to do to secure God's blessing on us? It's pretty simple. Stop trying to destroy my people. You know, as a parent, if someone tries to destroy your children, that does things to your blood pressure. It also does things to your violent quotient, right? So you look at this and you say, you have heard God speak three times directly and you have learned precisely nothing from that. And yet you're the one who puts such store in Balaam's prophetic abilities that you paid him big bucks and now he's told you what to do and you won't follow it. Simon and Garfunkel wrote, once wrote a song called The Boxer. Interesting tagline. A man hears what he wants to hear. You know the rest? And disregards the rest. A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Balak knew what he wanted and he refused to hear anything that didn't agree with what he wanted. He's obviously used to getting his own way. He's going to bribe, threaten, cajole, pay, flatter, anything it takes to get his way. But he does not take into account the immovable, unchangeable, eternal, infinite reality of Almighty God. You've all heard the story of a battleship near the coast in a dense fog who commanded what they thought was another ship to change positions in order to avoid a collision. Turns out the light they saw was not coming from another ship. It was coming from a lighthouse. Making choices that are disconnected from reality can destroy you. Usually does. Balak is refusing to live with spiritual reality. People who live their life without Jesus Christ are living a life disconnected from reality. And they keep 
destroying the life. They keep driving the bus off the road into the ditch. They keep going through relationships and they simply say, how come this isn't working for me? Real simple. You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You are going to be foolish. Continually foolish. And Balak had all the exposure. He had direct contact with God through Balaam. He heard his word and he said, forget about it. He persisted in trying to curse what God has blessed. Jesus said, those that hate the light hate it because they love their darkness, right? You're going to have people that don't want to follow Jesus because they love their sin. Even though their sin is going to kill them, they love their sin and they're going to refuse to submit. They would follow their own way, even if it leads to destruction. That's what actually happened to Balak. Balaam is a double-minded doubter. Balak opposed God. Balaam doubted God. Balaam's been trying to serve two masters. And you know what happened? He lost the reward for both of them. Balak refused to reward Balaam because he failed to curse Israel. God refused to reward Balaam because he wanted to curse Israel. So he lost on both counts. What did Jesus say? No one can serve two masters. You've all seen the picture of um, the person who's trying to go from the dock to the boat, and they have one foot in the boat and one foot on the dock. And you're looking at that and saying, you're not going to get either one. You're not going to get the dock. You're not going to get the boat. You're going to get the water. And I don't want the water. I want either the boat or the dock, but I'm trying to have both, and you're going to get neither. That's Balaam. He wants the blessing of God, and he wants the cash for cursing Israel, and he gets none of it. Matter of fact, he loses his life next chapter, which we find out next week. But one last thing. Balaam's now been fired. He's going to get no reward. His consulting contract has been terminated with extreme prejudice by Balak. And yet Balaam says, I got another word for you from God. We're only going to pick up a few pieces of this. This is the fourth one. Begin in verse 14. Balaam says, now I'm about to go to my own people. Come now, Balak, and I will advise you as to what this people, Israel, will do to your people in the future. Verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion, and will destroy the remnant of the city. Now, Balak is listening to this. And one of the things you need to understand, from Balak's point of view, all these prophecies are getting progressively worse. I mean, it's not getting better, it's getting worse and worse. First of all, he finds out it's impossible to curse Israel. You can only bless them because God's blessed them. Not only that, anyone who tries to curse Israel will be cursed themselves. By the way, you can track the history of world empires based on their relationship to Israel. 
when they begin to curse Israel, to go against Israel and fight Israel, somehow they disappear from dominance on the world scene. God's word will never be mocked. Thirdly, Yahweh, Israel's God, is not just another little local God like Balak thinks. This is the Lord of glory. He is non-manipulable by human beings. He's the eternal, unchanging, all-powerful God of everything. God's numerous blessings, this God of glory's numerous blessings on Israel guarantees their prosperity and their dominance over all the other peoples. And worst of all, from Balak's point of view, Balaam just told them that there, a king is going to arise in the future who's going to destroy you from being a nation. When someone says you're going to crush someone's forehead, that does not mean good news. That means death. In the ancient Near East, anytime you use the word star and scepter, those were references to kings and rulers. However, it's interesting that Balaam's final prophecy goes far beyond Moab. God, through Balaam, is foretelling a coming king, a Messiah, who will rise out of Israel and rule over all. And Balaam kind of hints at this. He says, I see him, but not now, right? I behold him, but not near. He's saying this will occur in the distant future. What he's doing is prophesying the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. What is utterly intriguing that God would speak prophetic eternal truth through this dirty vessel called Balaam which should give us great comfort. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you. If he demanded perfection from us, he would use none of us because none of us are perfect. But the blood of Jesus Christ is a continual cleansing agent that cleanses us from all sin. What's interesting when you step back from this, Marty's going to come up and lead us in prayer and praise you. can remember this when you do that, is that this is a spiritual battle. And it's taking place over Israel and the mountaintops and Israel, God's people, are completely unaware of it. They know nothing of this at this point. Now, God's going to reveal it to Moses because they're going to find out next chapter. In this sense, Israel's a little bit like Job. Remember Job? All these bad things happened to him. In chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Job, God pulls the curtain behind the heavenly scenes, and you see that God and Satan are having this conversation. Job knows nothing of what's going on behind the curtain. He just knows what's happening to him. Israel has no idea that Satan is using Balak through Balaam to try and curse God's people. I have no idea what kind of spiritual warfare is going on top of these hills. Demons and angels, I, I don't know. But it had to be an intriguing sight that God in His infinite wisdom knew we didn't need to see. But... You and I live on a spiritual battleground. There's spiritual warfare all around us all the time. That's just the reality of the world we live in. It should give us great comfort, however, that no matter how bad that is, we have Almighty God as our protector. God is protecting Israel, and Israel doesn't even know there's a battle over them. It's the same with us. There's all sorts of forces around us trying to influence us, derail us, harm us. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. And God, the God of glory, is the one who guarantees the blessings he promised us despite the opposition of hell itself. So we should obviously live in light of that. So let's review, and then we'll move on to prayer and praises. Principle number one, <clears throat> knowing about God 
does not create a right relationship with God. That only comes by faith in God through Jesus Christ. We've already talked about the fact that Balaam and Balak increasingly had knowledge of God, didn't change their relationship because they were unwilling to exercise faith because they loved their sin. Number two, God's people are called to be different from the world so that they can accurately represent God to the world. If we live like the world, we have nothing to say to them. They go, you're just like me. Why should I listen to you about life change? There's no life change in you. You're living like I'm living. Unless we're different, we have nothing to say. Number three, we should build our lives on the foundation of God's word because everything God promised will surely come to pass. And you know what's essential about what I just said? You can't build your life on something you don't know. So if this is the foundation, you should know what it says. Yes? Which means that's why we should be in the Word of God every single day because those promises, when God makes a promise in the Bible, you know what that is? That is a check with His signature on it. You don't know what's going to happen, but He says that's the foundation Jesus talked about. Everyone who hears my words and obeys them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. Anyone who hears my words and doesn't do them, they know, but they don't do, they're building their life on the sand. <clears throat> Number four, since God is the only source of our security and prosperity, we should trust in him alone. Folks, there's a lot of things out here in this world that want us to trust in them. Let's trust in our bank account. Let's trust in our health. Let's trust in our job. Let's trust in our government. Let's trust in our elected leaders. Bottom line, your trust is in the Lord and only the Lord. Because even Solomon in all his wisdom didn't live according to this, but he said, do not put your trust in princes. Lastly, opposing God is futile. That's Balak. He never figured that out. Doubting God is fruitless. That's Balaam. He didn't figure it out either. Following God by faith is the only way that God's blesses. That's Israel's call, and that's the call of you and I as God's people. I love you all. Now that you know, do. If you want to be prepared to be depressed and angry, read the next chapter. <laughs> you will see the sovereignty of God at work. See you next week. You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hannock and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together, and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.